to not live in a way that we determine how God is going to work. Because when we do that, God tends to take those plans, to take that understanding and just blow it up. You know, we put God in a box and God blows that box up, takes it away. Last week, Chris talked from Acts 17 about what happened, but that, that Paul had these plans. Paul had plans that he was going to go to Athens, that he was just going to kind of chill. He was going to take it easy. But as he's walking around the city, just kind of relaxing, he sees all these idols. And he sees an idol to an unknown God. And the church leader said, Paul, just take it easy. You're, you know, you're causing an uproar every place you go. Just take it easy. But Paul comes to this unknown idol and, and, and they give him a chance to speak because he says, I know who that God is. And he does. And ultimately, Athens changes because the gospel comes in to that culture. Paul recognizes the culture that he's in, what it looks like what it smells like, what it feels like. And he's able to speak in that sense, speak Jesus into that culture. And God began to transform lives. Today we're going to move backwards a little bit. Last week we were in Acts 17. Today we're going to look at Acts 13, uh, really through Acts 15. Um, we're going to kind of do an overview, and, and today's message is really kind of a concept message. But if you've got your Bibles, if you've got an electronic device, go to Acts chapter 13. Um, Acts 13 through 15 actually takes place over a period of about six years. Um, that, uh, what's interesting is when you look at historians and you look at scripture, that six year period is, is one that we can, that we can really identify and get a hold of. Um, Agrippa, um, was, was the, the governor and in Acts 12, in Caesarea that we talked about uh, two weeks ago, the, the big theater that was there, Agrippa speaks in that theater. And, um, and the, the people say, oh, he has the voice like of God. And, and Agrippa doesn't, um, doesn't give the glory to God. And he ends up dying. Uh, the, Acts 12 says that he was eaten of worms and he died. How descriptive is that? Yeah, that sounds really fun, doesn't it? But we know that that happened from historians in, in um, A.D. 44. And we know uh, with some stuff that happens in Acts 15, 16, that that happened in, um, in A.D. 50. So it's a six-year period between Acts 13 and Acts 15 that we're looking at as Paul begins um, to lead the charge into the world with the gospel. Uh, the, uh, I'm going to start in, in 13 verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. In Acts 13 through 15, it describes the journey that Paul takes, his first missionary journey, that takes him to a whole bunch of places to establish churches and then to come back through and check on those churches. Um, these are the places, if you look in Acts 13, 14, 15, these are the places that you see, the city names, Seleucus, Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos, Perga, Pamphylia, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. It goes back to Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, and Italia. Um, lots of places that we don't know 
those, the names of those cities now, but it's in, in basically in Turkey and in Asia Minor. Paul goes on, on, on a journey with Barnabas that's a journey of 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles over those six years. Um, and it's a journey that goes out to an extreme end and then comes back. So for us, to just put that in practical terms, that's like setting out today and, and God saying, you know what, i got some place for you to go. I want you to start walking and head towards New York City. All right? You're going to walk to New York City, and as God opens the doors, you're going to have a chance to talk about Jesus along the way. And then once you get to New York City, you're going to come back. That's, about, that's roughly 1,400 miles. That's what happens to Paul and Barnabas over this six-year period. Paul ultimately goes on four different journeys, four different journeys to plant churches and to tell the story of Jesus. Um, why? Here's the question that's kind of fundamental to the message today. Why did Paul and Barnabas and later Paul and Silas, because at the end of 15, it describes a, a separation that takes place between um, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas goes with John Mark. Paul goes with Silas on the rest of his journeys. Why did they invest so much time, so much energy, so much of their lives traveling and planting churches? Why did they do that? Wouldn't it have been easier for them to stay in Israel, to stay in Palestine, to stay where they knew in the culture of the Jews and, and even in there to deal with Gentiles who are there and to plant churches there. Um, why did they do that? Why did they go to all that trouble? And I, I think it helps to understand the difference. To answer that question, I think it helps to understand the difference between pioneers and settlers. There's a difference between pioneers and settlers, right? Pioneers are the guys who blaze a trail, who go where no man has gone before. Uh, pioneers are the people who live life on the edge. Every day's an adventure. They don't know if they're going to live or die because they're in uncharted territory, right? When, when I think about pioneers, I think, I think Captain Kirk, boldly go where no man's gone before, that kind of deal. But uh, historical context, I think, I, I think Lewis and Clark, right? 1804. They set out on this journey through the Louisiana Territory and go places that no white man has ever gone before. They they travel for for, uh, three years, four years, uh, in 1804. Pioneers, every day, they didn't know what they were going to encounter, whether they were going to live or die. But the mission called them to go be pioneers. When I think about settlers... I think, you know, settlers come after pioneers. They settle the place that the pioneers have already explored, right? Um, if, if I think historically, again, I, I think Horatio Alger, um, his, his deal, go west, young man, right? Um, that was all about calling people from the east to come settle the west. Not all the way out into, I guess, even out into California, but through the middle of the country as well. Challenged people to come. Places were still scary. It still wasn't real safe. But the pioneers had gone before and blazed the trail. Why is it that Paul and Barnabas went into new places to plant churches? I think because they were pioneers. Because God called them to go where no one had gone before. To plant churches that could become beachheads. That could become places that the kingdom of God could go forth from and ultimately impact the rest of the world. Today, 2,000 years later, 
we're the beneficiaries of the journeys of Paul. We stand in the wake of those travels to go and plant churches. Our lives are different. Our culture is different because Paul took those journeys and planted churches and the kingdom expanded. Uh, when, uh, the, today's message is the, it's the, it's the challenge, the mandate to be involved in church planting. I think when you look at Acts 13, 14, 15, when you read that and you read history of what Paul and Barnabas did, there's a, there's a clear challenge for us to somehow get in the game and be church planters, to be involved in church planting, to go places where the gospel hasn't gone before. Um, that in order to be able to do that, I think we've got to come to grips with a question. What's it mean to be the church? What's it, what does it mean to be the church? The church is not a building, right? In our language, there's a, there's a problem because we say, hey, what are you doing on Sunday? Oh, I'm going to church. What's that mean? That means that you're coming to 505 East Web. You're coming in the facility. But the facility is not the church. It's just a facility. The church is us. It's you and me. It's the body of Christ that comes together, that, that lives that out. Um, the church is not an organization. Sometimes we talk about the church in terms of, you know, the, the church is a 501c3 organization. We can give our money. It's tax deductible, all that kind of thing. The church is not an organization. The church is an organism. It's it's a living thing that comes as we who love and serve Jesus come together. What's that look like in practical terms? Um, the, The church is the tangible presence of Jesus on earth, right? We are our role is to show the world what Jesus looks like. We're to be his hands and feet here on earth. The church is the hope of the world. Where the church goes, there's light and life. Where there's no church, there's darkness. There's no hope. The church is, is the, the bride of Christ, right? Sometimes the, the bride is so beautiful. The church is so great. Let me show you a picture. Got it. Everybody say together, oh, is she beautiful or what? That's our youngest daughter, Gabrielle. Uh, she's, um, she's 22 and um, incredible time last Sunday. Sometimes the bride is just stunning. You know, you, you see the bride and you think, oh, man, that's so cool. Sometimes the church is that way, right? Sometimes you come in and you're hurting and you come in contact with the church and it's like salve for wounds. It's this place of grace that it's just like you walk in and you start to cry because God's working and the church is beautiful. Sometimes the church is not so beautiful, right? Sometimes there's lots of struggles. I did, um, there was a couple that I was going to marry in, in uh, Virginia when we were out there. They were a young couple. They had lots of struggles. We did lots of premarital counseling. Um, we, the, my premarital counseling with them probably went 15, 18 hours, something like that, to try and get them ready 
for, for the wedding. And what ended up happening was they changed the date of their wedding and I was going to be out of town. So I handed the wedding off to another guy who was on staff at the church that I was. So we went on our trip, came back, and I said, hey, how'd the wedding go? And he looked me in the eye and he said, you owe me. And I said, really? And he said, you owe me big time. And I said, tell me more. What's, you know, what's the story? And he goes on to explain, again, this couple had lots of struggles, lots of, lots of things against him going in. She was pregnant. By the time of the wedding, she was probably, I don't know, seven, eight months pregnant. And, and really, she was really pregnant, if you can be really pregnant. Um, she, was, she was 45 minutes late for the wedding because she was getting ready. And so she called when she's in the car on the way to the wedding ceremony. She called and said, hey, I'm going to be there in like three minutes. Go ahead and start the ceremony. So they start the ceremony. Can you picture this? They start the ceremony. My friend who's doing the wedding can see out the window. Um, Her sisters are singing a song that they just have to keep singing because it's not three minutes. You know, it's longer than that. Car pulls up. It's, a, it's like a Mazda. It's a, it's a small car. She's very pregnant. She swings to get out of the car. She's wearing her army boots underneath the, the wedding gown, smoking a cigarette, rushes in, fixes her hair, comes down the aisle. That's just one slice of the wedding story. Sometimes... The church is like that, right? Sometimes the church has got lots of challenges, lots, lots of difficult stuff. And yet, Jesus came for the church. Jesus came for the church. He came to save the church. And Jesus is going to return for his bride, no matter how, how she looks. Um, last weekend... Gabe, our daughter Gabe's wedding, it was an outdoor wedding. What's the one thing you worry about with an outdoor wedding? <laughs> got rain. So, we, you know, we're out in Missouri looking at the forecast every day and thinking, oh, are we going to make it or not? 90% chance of rain on Sunday. Then that comes down to 60%. You're looking at the hourly forecast. It's going to rain in the morning, going to rain at night. That's a, that's a good thing. Get up on Sunday morning, got Kind of white puffy clouds, got some blue sky, everything's looking good, but there's still forecast. It's about six o'clock, it's supposed to rain. Get everything set, all the chairs set up, the arch is there. About a half hour before the wedding, the wind starts picking up. You see these big gray clouds begin to come in. The arch that's set up outside goes because of the wind. About, I, I go and pick up Gabe and the, and the bridesmaids in our van. We have a big 12-passenger van, so I, I take them from the, from the little house where they had uh, gotten dressed and bring them down to where the wedding's going to be. And um, as we come down, it starts to rain, like really rain. All the guests are, are hiding under this kind of overhang out of the rain. There's a greenhouse there. Um, I drive the van and we, we park by the greenhouse. I get out. They all stay in the, in the greenhouse. And, and we go through this process that basically what happened was we did the wedding in the greenhouse. Everybody stood for the wedding. It was really cool. It was great. About 10 minutes after the wedding was done, the skies opened. It was 
clear blue sky, clouds, uh, nice outdoor reception. Everything worked great. Really cool. Here's the picture that I want that I tell that story for. It's raining. We're trying to figure out what to do. Gabe and her bridesmaids are hanging out in the van, just waiting in the van. And what are they waiting for in the van? They're waiting for the groom, Jesse, to get everything ready in the greenhouse to make sure that the ministers set the music set, all that stuff. And when the groom said, we're good to go, music starts, wedding took place, and the bride comes. That's the picture of Jesus and the church. You know, um, it doesn't matter if we're beautiful. It doesn't matter if we're a mess. Jesus is coming back for the church, and the church needs to be ready for him. Um, What's the church... The the church, real simple, uh, let me just draw some pictures. The church is a place of service. It's a place that, as the tangible expression of Jesus, we have a chance to serve the world around us. Um, Yesterday morning, we had about 15 people from North Point that partnered with DeWitt Township to go take care of a widow who lives in the south part of the township. She's not a part of the church. It wasn't a church thing. These were 15 people that just served willingly and went and scraped her house and cleaned her basement. Stuff that she's not able to do, cleared her yard. The church is a place of service. Our third serves that we do are not about just bringing people together for no reason. It's so that we can serve the community, so that we can serve the world and be the hands and feet of Jesus in real practical ways. The church is a place of service. The, the church, too, is a place of redemption, right? Sometimes the church is a mess, and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes our lives are just simply a mess. I talked about it just a second ago. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like, I don't know if I can go to church because this happened, and my life's, my life's a wreck and everybody there is going to be happy and it's going to be good. And I just don't, I'm I'm not getting it. The church is designed to be a place of redemption and a place of grace. I want North Point to be a place that you don't have to put on a facade when you come in and have people say, Hey, how's it going? And say, Hey, it's good. And your marriage is a wreck. Your finances, they're a mess. You've got all this strife going on. You think you're going to lose your job. You've got medical stuff going. We need to be able to be real so that the church can be a place of safety and redemption. God has done some incredible things at North Point. North Point is a place that lots of people who have been wounded in other churches have come to. People who have been burnt other places have come, and for some reason God has allowed us to be a place that they could be embraced and loved and, and healed through that process. We have, we have more than 10 former pastors, a part of North Point, guys who have, who have served God with their lives and gotten beat up in the process. And this has been a place that they could connect. Um, you know, uh, about a month or so ago, Rich, um, Rich Whitman shared communion. He's, he's one of those guys that's a former pastor. Buzz, um, Buzz, come on up. I want to introduce you to Buzz Barr. Everybody say, hey, Buzz. Hey, Buzz. <laughs> that, that's just fun to say, it. Hey, Buzz. Um, 
Buzz, Buzz has been a pastor uh, for about the last 12, 15 years, whatever. 21. The last 21 years in mid-Michigan. And, um, and about, what, a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, the church kind of went in another direction that didn't include Buzz. And um, life got turned upside down. And Buzz and Kelly didn't know what to do. Lots of pain. Oh, we talked about it a ton. He said, he said, you know, we came to North Point so we could just kind of sneak in and go under the radar because we knew that we needed God. We knew that we needed to be connected to his body, but we didn't have the strength or energy to be able to do anything. Um, you want to say anything else? In the first service, I was introduced as the messed up guy. And um, so I like that. I, I enjoy representing the messed up people. Um, but I, I just want to say I appreciate Rick and, and the church because we've hidden out in, in the back section of each of these rows here, or the back rows of each of these sections. And um, it's been cool. It's been cool to see what God has done from, from really actually having to leave literally in the middle of worship because you begin to sing a song about trusting God. And I don't know if you've ever been angry before, but just going, hey, you know, I can't really deal with that right now, but thanks, to now being able to stand up here and go, hey, I'm thankful for what God has brought us through. So appreciate this place. Um, next week I'm going to be gone, and Buzz is going to speak. Buzz is, is going to preach next week. And um, that's a really cool thing. Uh, You know, we're, we're talking in this series about living on mission with God, and that means following God's plan, not ours. Where these guys are, that wasn't a part of their plan <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But God's being faithful f- through that process. So if you get a chance this week, read Acts 16. Buzz is going gonna, is gonna to speak next week from Acts 16, and uh, he's got some cool stuff to share. So uh, encourage Buzz one more time. The church is a God designed the church to be a place of service, a place of redemption, a place where you can heal. If you feel like, man, my life is a wreck, you're in the right place. The church is a place for messed up people. Um, the church, too, is it, it really is a place for prayer um, in this whole concept of living on mission with God and that it means following God's plan and not ours. My vision for this message this week um, was one thing. I, I was going to talk about church planting and, and just really try and encourage and inspire everybody to say, oh, man, we've got to do church planting and, and, and develop that in a, in, a, in a completely different way. And uh, on, I think, Thursday, I made a phone call to a lady who's part of North Point named Brenda Miller. She's uh, typically in first service. I called her because uh, she spent about a month at the University of Michigan Hospital a month or so ago, and I hadn't heard how she was doing. I, and it was, I've, I've told you before, whenever the Holy Spirit says, hey, give that person a call or send them a note, do it, because God's got incredible stuff in store. So I, I, I just thought, oh, man, I don't know what's going on with Brenda. Call Brenda. Hey, Brenda, how's it going? And she said, she said, hey, Rick, I'm so glad that you called because when I was in the hospital before, they found some cancer in my lymph nodes. They weren't sure what it was at that point in time. We went to the oncologist um, early this week, 
and basically they've said that I've got cancer somewhere in or around my liver, my bile duct, and it's not, um, we, it, it's inoperable, it's not um, curable. Um, there's some things that we can do to treat it, but, but the prognosis is really, really bleak. So Brendan and I had a chance to talk about that and to talk about how God works through that and for her to say, you know, I've, I'm coming to grips with the fact that I'm probably not going to live into my 80s. I'm not going to see my grandkids grow up. There's lots of stuff that I had in my plan that's probably not going to take place. Um, that, that conversation spurred another conversation on Friday where she said, hey, Rick, um, you know, in the Bible it talks about having the church come and pray for you, the elders pray and anoint you with oil. Could, could we do that? And I said, man, Brenda, absolutely. So first service, Brenda came down with her husband, Roger, and the elders anointed her with oil, and we prayed for her collectively as a body. I want to do that again, this service, in just a second. But let me, let me just kind of share what that's from, what that looks like, because I think it's an important thing. This is from James chapter 5. It says, Is any, anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you can be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. God designed the church to be a place of prayer a place that we could pray for each other, that we can be real and share our junk and have people come alongside us, not to judge us, not to, not to pile on, but to pray for and encourage each other. Brenda recognizes that the prognosis from the doctor is it's bleak. You know, the doctor said, there's, there's just not really anything that we can do. But when I talked to her on Friday, she said, I know that God is bigger than the doctors. That doesn't mean that he's going to absolutely heal me in the way that I expect, but I know that God is bigger than the doctors, and so we need to pray for each other. Um, I want to... I wanna, um, there, there are a couple things on my mind, uh, along with praying for Brenda, actually three things that I want us to do right now, just as the church. One is um, the earthquake in Nepal. Um, the statistic I saw this morning was 2,200 people dead. Um, in a culture that's dark without the gospel. 2,200 people, families, communities, just looking for some kind of hope and um, light somewhere. We need to pray for them. Uh, saw a report on, uh, towards the end of the week, 28 more Christians, Ethiopian Christians, were executed by ISIS uh, this past week in Libya. Um, the church, the persecuted church that we pay, prayed for several weeks ago, we need to pray for them. The church needs to be a place of prayer. Um, and here's, here's what I'd like to do, because everybody's got a story, right? Everybody's got stuff. If, if this morning you have this sense, you know what, there's some stuff that's just really heavy on me, and I'd like for people to pray for me, um, would you just stand up right now? 
um, feel free to do that. I, I know that that could be everybody, it, it could, uh, whatever. But if, if you've got needs, um, stand up. And everybody just kind of look around. If you're um, around someone that is standing up and you want to just put your hands on them and pray for them, feel free to do that. If you want to put your hands towards them, that's a cool thing. Um, if you want to, if you're if just, as you said, if you just want to pick somebody out by the back of their head and say, um, that's who I want to pray for, let's, let's spend some time just praying right now, okay? God, what a crazy thing it is to look around and to know there are so many people who are just carrying burdens that I don't know if they're going to get through the day because of the burdens. People who are struggling because of stuff that's happened in the past. People who are confused. People who are just in pain people who are struggling physically, um, all kinds of things. Lord, collectively as a body right now, we ask that you would do your work in each person. God, we are so grateful that you know the needs of each person. You know exactly what they need. God, you know better than they do. And we just ask, Lord, that you would come in that you would fill them with your spirit and that you would take care of those needs in a way that is just so incredibly redemptive that we can't imagine. God, cover them with your love and with your grace. Lord, we ask, for, we ask that you'd be with the people who are struggling, especially with physical stuff, with, with disease and with sickness and illness, bodies that don't work. God, we ask that you'd be with Brenda and with Roger. And Lord, I I ask that you would get inside every cell of her body and that you would heal her cancer. You're the one who made her, God. You know how everything works far better than any doctor. And Lord, we collectively just ask that you would heal her. God, there are others in similar places and we ask that you would do your work in their bodies as well, that you would bring healing Um, Not just so that they'd get well, but so that you would be honored and glorified and people would be drawn to you and they would, uh, in their story, that they would be able to just boldly proclaim that you were Savior and healer and redeemer in cool ways. God, we ask that you'd be with the people that have been impacted by the earthquake, the families that have lost moms and dads and kids the communities that have crumbled around folks. And God, we, we just ask that you would um, bring followers of Jesus into that world and that, 
that, that they would bring hope and light. God, that physical needs would be met and that they would sense you there and come to you as a result of that. God, we ask that you'd be with our brothers and sisters in Christ in, in Africa, that their lives are on the line. Lord, encourage them and give them boldness. And God, we pray right now for the people who are part of ISIS, that as they persecute, like, like Paul, that they might come to faith in you, that they might encounter you through the testimony of the people that they persecute. God, I ask that you would change their hearts, that you would draw them to you for eternity. God, help us to be a place where prayer is just not perfunctory, but it's real, heartfelt conversation with you telling you our burdens, telling you our struggles. And listen to you, God, seeing you work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Why why is it? Why 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 plant churches? Um, I've been connected to an organization that their, their tagline, their deal is, why plant churches? I'll give you seven billion reasons why. You get that? Seven billion people on earth today. Seven billion people. Two-thirds of them don't have any kind of relationship with Jesus at all. Two-thirds. Do we have too many churches? Not hardly. We need to plant churches to reach lost people for eternity, to provide hope and encouragement, light and life, to share Jesus with them. You know, as a church, we, we, we're involved in planting churches even now. We support four missionaries in, in significant ways. Um, Tim and Courtney Chantier work with the Yumbi Yumbi tribe. M- many of you know who they are. In Papua New Guinea, a tribal people, no language, no awareness of the gospel before the group from New Tribes went there, before Tim and Courtney went in with a group of people to share Jesus with them. Their goal is to plant a church among those tribal people in Papua New Guinea that can impact that re- region for eternity. Um, uh, Herb and Kim Burkett are missionaries that were sent from North Point to the Ukraine. They were regular people just like you. Many of you know them. Ten years ago, they were here and just felt God nudged them to go become missionaries in the Ukraine. And they did. They listened to God and went. And they're involved in planting churches in the Ukraine in an incredible way. Um, Doug and Don Rutledge are, are another, another set of missionaries that we support. That they've, they were in Lansing, in the Lansing area. Um, and and uh, and Dawn began to have this burden for where for the the county where she grew up in southern Michigan, for the kids that were there, the teenagers. It's an area without any industry, without any jobs, without really any future, without many resources, and basically all that 
was there for kids was to just kind of struggle, survive, and leave to get into trouble, to play with sin, to do all kinds of stuff. And Doug and Dawn went to go essentially plant a church for teenagers in southern Michigan. What a, what a cool thing. We're involved in that. Jag and Abby Dunn are um, uh, Abby's fr- from, from North Point, like Courtney Chantier. Um, they were missionaries in Papua New Guinea, but have come back and are working with New Tribes uh, Training Center in Jackson right now. They're doing support work so that students can come there and learn how to, how to plant churches in a tribal context. It's a, it's a really cool thing. The New Tribes philosophy I love because basically what they say is they send people into places that don't have a written language, that don't know about Jesus, and they say, what we want you to do is just kind of build relationships first. And they wait until the community invites them to come and live with them. Once the community says, yeah, we would love to have you come and stay here with us, um, they spend the next two or three years just building relationships with the people who are there, getting to know their language, getting to know um, their worldview, getting to know their customs, the, why they think the way that they do. And after two or three years, when they're, when they're able to communicate in the heart language of the people, they begin the process of translating Scripture. And they don't start, interestingly enough, they don't start with one of the Gospels. They don't start with the story of Jesus. They start with Genesis with teaching the concept that there's a God who made everything, who made the world, who created people so that he could have a relationship with them. And when he made them, it was perfect, it was great. And then sin entered the world and blew it all up. That's where they start because Jesus doesn't make any sense without that framework, right? Without understanding that God desires to have a relationship with us. And our sin messed it up. But Jesus can come in and fix that. I love what New Tribes is doing. Um, what, what does church planting look like for us as a church? I, I don't know. I, um, I, all I know is when I read Acts 13 to 15, the middle section of Acts, I think that God wants us to be involved in it somehow. That may be um, a planting a campus, having a second or a third or fourth campus where we have little north points around. There are churches that do that in the Lansing area. It may be that we take a, a group of people and that we pick a community and we say, you know what, we want to do a mother-daughter kind of a deal where we send people and resources and plant a church in that community. It may be that, that we... Um, we create a network with some other churches and share our resources and plan a church locally or um, somewhere around the country, around the world. I, I don't know what that looks like. I really don't know what that looks like, but I do think that God is calling us to be involved. Um, many of you know that when I started uh, nine months ago, there were two things that I really felt like God prompted me to do. One was to have desserts at our house. Lots of you came to our house for for dessert last fall. We're going to do that again. And uh, if you didn't come before, come later because it was a really fun thing. The other thing was I felt like I needed to meet with leaders in the community. I needed to get to know them. But one of the, uh, I've met with about 50 different leaders. One, um, one of the ones that is most vivid in my mind is a lady named Greta Woof, who's at Peckham Industries down by the airport. Um, when I went and talked to her and saw Peckham, saw what they were doing there, their mission is to help disabled people um, integrate into the workforce. 
a really cool vision. Um, one of the things that Greta shared with me was they've got roughly 1,200 employees at Peckham. 54%, 54% of their employees, English is not their native language. So 54% are first-generation immigrants. They represent 40 different languages here in Lansing. To, to me, that's like, you know, the world is at our doorstep. There's a, there's a huge opportunity. I don't know if God is calling us to plant a church for refugees. I, I don't know what that looks like. All I know is that God has called us to do stuff. Statistically, new churches reach lost people far better than established churches. They do it more economically. They do it more effectively than established churches. God has called us to reach lost people. If Jesus really came to seek and save the lost, if Jesus really came to seek and save the lost, if Jesus really believed what he said when he said, go, teach, baptize, teach, if Jesus was serious about that, we've got to be involved in church planting. That's, that's the call for us, the mandate. Living on mission with God means following his plans, not ours. I don't know what the specifics are, but I think that God is calling us to plant churches in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I think that God is calling us to plant churches in Lansing, in mid-Michigan, in the U.S., and throughout the world in numbers that we've never imagined. 175 years ago, pioneers and settlers planted a church in DeWitt that impacts us today. Think about what your life would be like if North Point didn't exist. We owe, we owe those people 175 years ago for the opportunity to be here and to be the presence of God in this community. My prayer is that if Jesus tarries, if Jesus waits 175 years from now, there would be 20 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 churches that have been planted because of North Point. That 175 years from now, people would look back and say, man, what was going on there in the early 21st century has changed eternity. Let's pray. God, uh, we come to you right now. Recognizing the lostness of the world, recognizing the need for us to be a beautiful bride, recognizing, God, that we want to be a place of grace and mercy and restoration, and that, God, that there are communities and people groups and cultures and subcultures everywhere that are dark places without you. Help us, Lord, to be diligent and persistent and intentional like Paul in planting churches. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.